Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Chef Joe Friday. Joe is a professional chef, a restaurateur, and an entrepreneur with two decades of experience in top restaurants across Canada, the United States, and Europe. In addition to working in all different types of restaurants, Joe has done small and large-scale catering, run special pop-up events, and hosted private dinners. In fact, he has cooked privately for a variety of interesting individuals, including professional athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and world leaders. And most exciting of all, Joe is about to launch his very own restaurant in Toronto called the Friday Burger Company. Welcome, Joe, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am in Toronto, Canada, and I'm doing wonderful. Great. And what part of town are you in? I'm in the, you know, kind of the old, old Toronto near St. Lawrence Market area. One of my yeah. Favorite. Honestly, my favorite part of the city. And I understand that you are a devotee of the St. Lawrence Market. Yes, I am a unsolicited uh, advertiser for them. <laughs> <laughs> good. And how often would you be at the market in a, on a weekly basis? Uh, on a good week, let's say four times. On, wow. a, on a bad week, let's say three times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as an insider and a professional, give us our uh, your best tip. Is it best to be there right when the doors open or your best to come at a certain time of the day to get the choicest of everything you know i go to see so i go throughout the week just to see if there's new things new produce mostly new produce and saturdays are really really good if you want to get with a lot of the local mennonites and stuff like that so that's really good for the weekends but you know if you if you're in and out and you want to get in and out don't go saturday uh morning (laughs) yeah because it's just like it's crazy so many people i go early morning on tuesday wednesday thursday and now they're open on sundays so i mean that's not as busy as well i didn't know that that's a game changer i always wondered i knew sunday monday they were closed i always thought to myself as a tourist place how do you close sunday while recognizing those people need some a day off as well yeah so that's a good change yeah now you clearly go for your produce when it comes to meat Seafood, is that your place too? Or do you have other places that you go as your go-to? I mean, as far as in my area, that is the best place to go to. Um, seafood and, and, and meat um, proteins. I mean, they have some, some pretty interesting things like kangaroo. <laughs> if you're into I that didn't know kind that. Of stuff. Um, but they also get a lot of local meat. And like I said, Saturdays are great because the Mennonites come in and they have, they have some of their local um, proteins, which is great as well. So I definitely like to get closer to the farm as possible. I'm going to ask you, Joe, to take a stand. The back bacon on a bun at Carousel or the veal sandwich down at Mustachios. Tourist trap or best in the city? I wouldn't say best in the city, but worth it. <laughs> okay. 100% worth it. Yeah. You're a future politician. You, you hedged that nicely. <laughs> as you know, Joe Friday was a fictional character created and portrayed by Jack Webb as the lead detective for the Los Angeles Police Department during the television series Dragnet back in 1949. This was a character that came back into the public eye with Dan Aykroyd's 1987 Dragnet movie. So, of course, Joe, my first question is the most important question. Is Joe Friday your real name? (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually a junior. Um, So my dad um, does the original Joe Friday. It took me a while as a youngster to kind of figure out this whole Joe Jack Webb character, but you know, I, I watch a lot of Dragnet and um, yeah. <laughs> it's really cool, man. I really like Jack. I, li- I really like Jack Webb. The original, you, though, not the Dan Aykroyd one. Okay. And, and you must have thought it was all about you. 
<laughs> I, at first. <laughs> <laughs> Let's please go all the way back. Get the Joe Friday Jr. story. Where were you born? And describe your upbringing. So I was born in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, um, just as a military base. At the time, it was, one of, it was the second largest military base in America. That was a very short stay because I was born a very ill kid. So I had to get kind of med back to Hawaii at a hospital called Tripler. So I kind of lived there for a year because uh, I had very weak heart. And that was a number one heart um, location for infants at the time. And so I was there for a year and. You know, the mili- my dad, mom, life kept moving, the military kept moving, and my dad got papers to move to Japan while I was there. So came back to North Carolina for a year, and we ended up living, moving to Japan by the time I was three years old. So from the age of three to um, roughly about 12, 13, I lived in Okinawa, Japan. Wow, that must have been quite a time to grow up there. And were you on a military base, or were you with the general population? Military base, military families. Um you know, we were on and off living in Okinawa, Japan for about 10 years. Like my dad would get stationed, like he would get stationed in South Korea, the Philippines. And we weren't, we stayed in Japan. It was just, it was just a closer place than being in the States. And then you know, every once in a while we came back to the States for a year or two. But yeah. And would you be getting a quote American education or were you in their school system? Uh, I was originally in their school system. I went to, uh, so I went to daycare and all that through Japanese school system. I think my parents had a choice and they chose to to let me go to Japanese school, which I think was really cool because I got to see kind of how they live. And I respect a lot of uh, the Japanese culture um, just based off of those few years. I got a lot of respect for the culture and definitely their food. <laughs> definitely their food. And did you pick up any language or any language that you remember today? Yeah, so I think throughout the years, the language has slowly uh, um, disappeared from my vocabulary. But I do, I do know phrases and stuff like that. And it's interesting. That's one of my things. I wanted to kind of like, I feel like I can pick it up pretty fast if I just taught myself. So that's something I want to do because I want to end up going back to Japan in a couple of years and um, do a food tour. That would be great. That's a great idea. Now, Joe, you moved back to North Carolina, I guess, as you say, maybe around the age of 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, 12, 13, uh, I moved back there. It was interesting, you know, uh, you know, being <laughs> being a black kid, kid in the South, um, coming from uh, Japan, not really understanding the culture like there. There's a culture that, you know, that people have a different backgrounds in America. And I didn't understand the culture, you know, like because I grew up around Japanese people. Um, so it was it was interesting. It was intriguing. I think there was a lot of confrontation the first two years of me living in the States just because I didn't understand like certain stigmas or whatever. And I think that was better for me because, you know, I didn't fall into any like traps or any like, you know, certain mentality throughout my life. So um, the early years of high school were a bit difficult. But martial arts was something that really helped me because, uh, you know, I, I studied martial arts in Japan. And then uh, one thing that I could do with that is join the wrestling team. And so mm-hmm. I joined the high school wrestling team and I dominated in that. And I kind of got uh, I made a name for myself that way as an athlete. So that was pretty cool. That's great. And certainly, as you know, one way to ingratiate yourself into the group is to be a good athlete. That tends to be a way to smooth out the edges. Yes, definitely. Now, as you note, the culture in North Carolina was very different. Everything revolves around, I guess, old-fashioned soul food, 
the barbecue must have been next level. You had the backyard cookouts, the block parties, the church dinners. How did this affect you seeing these two very uh, kind of opposing cultures? It must have changed the way you viewed food. Yeah, you know, I got obviously impacted very early uh, with food because, you know, my mom and dad, they're, they're Southern. My dad's from Mississippi. My mom's from North Carolina. And so we're living in Japan with all these different ingredients. Mind you, this military base, so they do import certain uh, items. But it's when you go out in town and you see like different grocery stores. I was really happy that my parents, you know, now that I see it, I really happy that my parents uh, were a bit adventurous. So my mom would make like fried chicken yakisoba or like different things that she's familiar with, but like with Japanese techniques. So I got to see that at a young age. And so when I moved to the States, it really wasn't a, a cultural shock because my parents kind of stayed true to who they are. But also, you know, I think they created, what's that word, uh, uh, infused cooking before um, it was it was a fab. I think, yeah. I think that's come and gone. But but yeah, that's, that was kind of our household. Like, you know, household was just like a bunch of different, different Japanese food, with uh, American food with Japanese technique, which is really cool. Well, as you know, Joe, it sounds like you were eating fusion before yeah. everyone else was. You were ahead of the curve. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Now... Growing up in these two kind of food cultures, and you're already kind of, as we talked about in the fusion, you actually trained in French cuisine. Yep. So, and where did you go for your uh, food training? So I kind of kind of went all around the pl- all around the world, uh, or just different schools. So it all started off at a small school in North Carolina called Wilkes Community College. I went there to do some culinary training, but soon, within six months, I got an opportunity to be a, um, a intern at Walt Disney World. And so Walt Disney World has a program that they work with their, their chefs, and it has a lot of Culinary Institute of America um, curriculum. So I had an opportunity to go to New York for a little bit, and then I, I went back to, to, um, to Disney World. And I got that, that CIA curriculum at Disney World, but it was more on hand. So there's a couple classes you can take a week, but then you actually get to go to work. And, um, you know, use some of the techniques and the lessons that, you you know, you learn in a real life situation. So I think that's a really accelerated program. Um, I'm not they didn't call it that then, but uh, they, every year Disney picks a certain amount of students around the globe um, and they placed them. Uh, it's really good for them because it's a labor. You know, it helps out with labor because we obviously get paid a lot. But we had a place to stay. We had three meals. I mean, it's like you're in school. So that was really intriguing. And then from there, I met a couple really cool people um, that uh, that I worked with um, and became friends with that lived around Europe. And so I got to explore and learn a little more my culinary arts um, by going to Norway, going to France, going to Italy. And that expanded my culinary knowledge really fast. I want to go to back to Disney, if I may. This is a shocking revelation to me that you're you could say I was trained at Disney. Sorry, this is an ignorant uh, observation, but it's all I know. When I'm at Disney, I remember paying $24 for a uh, turkey drumstick. I don't think at Disney is a place where you eat, but why don't you explain what you mean? Because Disney has all kinds of different eating at their different properties. So the food and beverage program at Walt Disney World probably may be the number one food and beverage program in the world. Like you just said, you went to Disney World, you had a $24 turkey. That's great. I mean, it's amazing. And that's something that everyone that went to Disney either seen, smelled, or tasted. 
so that's synonymous to Disney World. So, but with that being said, you know, there's so many different um, casual uh, restaurants, so QSRs all around the park that you can see, you can walk by. But then you see these like really nice um, hotels that have really like high end dining. Um, you see some of the best buffets you've ever seen in the world. Um, you see like fine casual, fine dining. There's so much, so much food and beverage going to Walt Disney World. They had to buy the equivalent landmass of farmland just to feed the people that come through. And so you got a picture of 50,000 people coming one day at Disney World on a very busy day and 100,000 people or more throughout the holidays every day. So Disney World has so many different um, ways to feed so many different type of people with different palates, right? So culturally, uh, you can go to Epcot and you can have, you know, a Canadian uh, meal. So the interesting Canadian pavilion is all about Canadian steaks. And so, you know, when I first moved to Canada, that was interesting because uh, I thought that I knew Canada already. They do have beaver tails. <laughs> they do have some other staples, but it's totally different. But then you can go to Italy, France, so, like the Epcot Center has, I think, 12, 13 countries there, right? So this taste of the world. So Disney World is, to me, one of the best places in the world to be trained in the, in the, in the food, in food world. That's a great point. Yeah. You really get that variety and all these different styles. Joe, I have to ask, did you get to enjoy the theme parks or was it all work, no play? Oh, it was, uh, it was a lot of play. Um, <laughs> I must say, you know, I, I, uh, in my younger years, I was very studious, I paid attention to what's going on in, in uh, the classroom and, and education. But I also understood there is a time to learn and a time to play. So I, I, I had an opportunity to go to all the, the parks at nauseum. I mean, uh, you know, you get if you work there, you go for free. And if family come to visit you, you get a couple of passes that can come. They can come with you. So I've been on like certain roller coasters and rides a little bit more than I would uh, have uh, <laughs> thought I would have. But that was pretty cool. And a lot of beach trips, you know, like so I lived in the student pavilion, Vista Way, they call it. Uh, it's a little uh, it's a little dorm just right outside of Walt Disney World, um, right outside the gate on the right hand side. And um, there is the, it houses about 20,000 students. The numbers could have changed over the years, but about 20,000 students are housed there. And yeah, so you get to work with like-minded people, people who are from small colleges, large colleges around the world, international students. So I thought it was really, really cool to kind of like start your career. This is seven, 19-year-old kid that's out there with somebody from that you've never, I'm from a small town, I grew up in Japan, but I've never met anybody from France or someone who speaks, um, you know, Italian. And so I'm now surrounded by all these different cultures and like learning so much more than I thought I would in a regular university setting. Well, you sold me on it. I think it sounds like a great way to get your education while you're working. Disney exposes you to everything. And then you took it to the next level. You actually packed your bags. Like you were saying, Joe, Norway, England, France, Italy, back to Japan to loon noodle making. But you eventually uh, kind of landed, so to speak, in Honolulu. You want to talk about that experience? Yeah. So throughout that whole little travel after I left Disney World, I was kind of like, you know, my small town doesn't have, you know, what I thought was like high end food. I mean, to this day, there's no nothing there that's like ever going to be a mission star. But with that being said, the food's extremely good. There's traditions that are met every day, you know, smoked chicken, fish. I live on this on the, near the ocean. So 45 minutes from the ocean and so much seafood. So, like, there's so much culture there, but it was nothing that was, like, 
nothing that was like what I wanted to do just leaving coloring the school, whatever, right? So I, I took a job at a restaurant called Texas Roadhouse and I became the manager within six months, not even six months, probably sooner. And it's because of, it was because of the Walt Disney World. They noticed that I had a higher level of skill than everyone else that they had on the team. And um, they sent me to Kentucky, Tennessee to train at the other stores. And I trained in uh, North Carolina, other places in North Carolina. I ended up in Charlotte um, at the Motor Speedway location. And I was the general manager there for six months. And then I took a vacation. The vacation was with a buddy of mine that used to be my roommate at Walt Disney World. And he's like, why don't you come to Disney and just check it out, man? It'd be great. Long story short, I went on that vacation and never came back home. Um, I was like, <laughs> there you go. So it was, it was interesting because it was that point in my life where I got a general manager job at a pretty decent city. At Don't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't really too passionate about cooking that food, but it was a great job. You know, steaks and potatoes, you know, and good money for the age I was. And so... I took a risk and I was like, I'm going to quit. My mom was a bit disappointed because she's seen the positive, you know, outcome of me starting a career and, you know, all these things that can lead up to, you know, a good future for, for a young person. But I was always, a, I've always been a creative person, always been kind of like, let's do this. And so I went, I, I got a job at a, a Cheesecake Factory, um, like my third day there. So I was like, I like this place. I'm going to stay. But let me make sure I can get a job before I call in and say I can't make it back at work. So um, I, with that being said, I had three weeks on vacation. I gave them the two-week notice on my vacation. So it wasn't like I just left them hand, um, you know, dry. So they had an opportunity to find a replacement. Well, you certainly <laughs> fly by the seat of your pants. You're moving and grooving. What brought you to Toronto and when? Yeah, so Toronto, I, I was working. So I was, I was working at a restaurant called Giovanni in uh, Toronto and I worked at Nobu and I so I met someone there and that person ended up living in uh, Toronto they were going to school and I was like all right well I'll come there you know like like you said I kind of like I kind of just go with the flow sometimes and I end up um, I end up in uh, Oakville Oakville for a little bit and uh, that was pretty cool and I ended up moving back to North Carolina because that me and that person didn't work out well. And so uh, I ended up coming back to Toronto because I was the plan was to move back home. I was going to go to Italy because I had an opportunity to go cook in Italy. But I came back to Toronto and I got a job interview at um, Oliver Bonaccini. Um, mm -hmm. They were opening Luma at the time. So that was this is 2011, 2012 ish. So they were opening Luma. And I end up becoming, you know, one of the cooks there. Uh, I worked really. I worked with Patrick Chris actually. He was the chef de cuisine, and Jason Bangeter was the executive chef there. So I worked there for about seven, eight months, and um, I got job offers while I was there. So I, I'm, I'm always kind of, I've always kind of was getting job offers. So I just kind of took it because it was like a more of a a, a leadership role. Mm -hmm. And so I took other job offers. And from then, I kind of worked all around Toronto, um, did so many different projects. Well, you got to know so many different people through all these different projects that you decided in 2013 to found something called the Chef Collective. What is the Chef Collective? Chef Collective, for me, um, Chef Collective is pretty awesome. Look, I want it to be way more than what it is right now. So there's plans. But what it started off to be was just I wanted to, you know, 
have chefs to give them an outlet to compete, to show them their show the world, to show the community their competitive spirit by competing with each other in a live setting. Um, I noticed there's a lot of TV opportunities for some for, for some chefs, but then some chefs there's not. I think I think there's I think the networks are very you know uh, right or wrong. I think they're very picky who they bring on on camera and stuff like that. It's got to be good for TV. But I wanted to I wanted chefs to just that maybe never wanted to be on TV, but are cool with the underground. So I call it like the underground rap battle scene, right? So okay. um, more of an underground vibe. I think we've, uh, I think over the years we've changed that um, a little bit more. It's getting a bit more mainstream because more people know, obviously know about it. Um, but yes, yeah, a platform we, where we compete. We're working on other avenues as well. We're working on doing merchandise pretty soon and partners with different um, brands that we like, like um, Medium Rare. Um, they do aprons. So, like, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're going to expand here pretty soon. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Chef Joe Friday, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got chefs Rob Rainford, Ted Reeder, and Sue Sir Lee, as well as food journalist Ivy Knight and retailer to the chefs Lily Tran. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Joe, clearly all your experiences and your travel have made you a very well-rounded chef. And this leads us to today. Tell us everything you're working on. you got a big opening coming, I understand. Yeah, so... Um... Openings, look, I, I didn't from the past, from my past, I didn't really go into like some of my restaurants that I worked at. But one of the first restaurants I worked in um, was a restaurant that had a burger on the menu, and I and it's like, wow, I love burgers. My dad makes a great burger. My whole family, we just like cookouts and burgers. You see, you know, good burgers. And so I always wanted to open a burger shop, like my whole professional career. And now the opportunity has come. I opened a restaurant called Friday Roots. Um, closed that right before the pandemic. It had a burger on the menu. Blog TO rep, um, recognized it as one of the best burgers in in Toronto in one of their articles um, at the time. And it was like something pretty cool. And I was like, you know what? I want to open a burger shop. Things happened naturally. There wasn't no me. I need to find investors. That was none of that. Everything happened extremely naturally, which makes the project feel so much good, so much better. Um, opening the burger spot is called Friday Burger Company. Opening at 81 Bay Street, uh, downtown Toronto, in the CIBC building. Um, we're uh, slated to open um, sometime this year, early summer, maybe late spring. We don't know. We don't have the exact date yet, but it's a project that we've been working on for three years. Extremely excited. I've been doing a lot of burger content in the meanwhile burger reviews and stuff like that. I think I've got, I've tasted over 70 burgers Canadian wide to kind of like see who has the best burger and what's different about burgers. Like you can tell that I, you can visually see that I'm doing my R and D research and development. Um, So that was kind of the the play there. Um, Trying to get to a hundred burgers, but you know, it's kind of hard. (laughs) It's good to have goals and aspirations, Joe. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's really exciting. And 81 Bay street, if I'm not mistaken, that is in the, uh, as you say, the CIBC, that's the commerce court building. Yeah. Does that mean you're in the food court or you're in the, uh, the kind of shopping retail mall area? I'm in the food, I'm on the fourth floor food court. So like, Right directly, it's right in the CIBC building. The Commerce Court's across 
So we have, there's Deneen Coffee. There's there's a couple other um, nice restaurants that are going to be in this food court. Um, you, I, every once in a while, I'll show a little bit, a little snippet on my uh, Instagram page. But yeah, it's uh, it's brand new. We, we're like the first kiosk that's done. And the team's extremely excited and eager, very eager to sell our first burger. Well, it sounds fantastic. And something interesting here is that you are also working alongside your fiance, Jackie Romanow. What's it like working alongside your partner in business and partner in life? You know, it's, it's, it's really good because we, we have uh, offsetting skills. And I think that allows, um, allows everyone to just do their job. You know, like if I can focus, she allows me to focus on what I do best. And because I am an entrepreneurial type person in the past, I've tried to do everything. And then when you try to do everything, you're not obviously not going to be good at everything. And that can be really bad for a customer or for business. Right. So it is great. I mean, having we're able to we're able to separate and enjoy ourselves. But then again, you know, nine to five, there's there's work to get done. So it works out really well. That's fantastic. So as you say, you offset each other. Communication must be the number one. Yeah, you know, I think communication is important in every, every aspect. And I'm not sure that I know anybody who's actually mastered it. There's some there's some great communicators that can actually speak um, and sit in front of an audience and talk about different topics and subjects. But that's not that's just a little piece of communication. Communication has so, so many different facets in it you know it's like making sure people understand that you know certain things are going on like rules and guidelines how do you communicate those right so communication is very important in business and obviously in a relationship so we have both joe i want to talk about some of your experiences as a private chef you've said that it's a bit ironic after all these years of cooking in all these restaurants in toronto for 10 years you actually made more friends working as a private chef than in all these other years when you're exposed to all these different people. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What was the experience like working as a private chef? Yeah, I mean, so what I mean by that is like, I don't know. I think I really do think my background living in Japan, that those 10 years really impacted me and in a lot of ways my personality. And so I don't tend to do what everyone else does. So like when you're at work and everyone go, wants to go do certain things, I don't necessarily show up to all of them. Because it's just not some, not the type of person I am. I've always tended to hang around people that are a lot smarter than me. Like I really just want to have a wealth of knowledge. Like and and there's no offense. There's so many chefs and and um, restaurant tours that are way smarter than me. But some of the people I worked alongside with were you know not necessarily the friendly types <laughs> you would say. And so working with some of these um, clients and, you know, I'm in a say I'm in a house of a, a very like well-known doctor and listening to their conversations, those intrigue me more because I'm one of the guys who shows up to work that knows everything about what I'm doing. So if I'm if I take a job at an Italian restaurant and I don't know everything in an Italian restaurant, give me three months, I will know everything because I'm going to study. So like there was there's. There's a lot to learn in the culinary arts and restaurants, but there's a lot that I knew. So if I'm in a house cooking for like a doctor and there's tons of things that I don't know, it's like I'm learning and I'm learning and I'm learning. So some of these, uh, I've, I've met so many more private chefs that are doing what I do. Um, the community is getting stronger. And I do believe with the Chef Collective, that's making the, that's helping the community get stronger too, which is one of my focuses. It's like I want, I want chefs that, 
don't know chefs to meet the chefs that they maybe admire or have a little inspiration from. And and I think we can bridge the gap with that. But being a private chef has been extremely fun, has uh, helped me to meet so many really cool people outside of my, my box. And like I said, I love to learn. I love to, to be kind of embedded into different um, societies and just like take from people, you know, take what, they, what they're willing to give, like as far as knowledge yeah. is concerned, so. Well, I want to ask you, to the extent that you're comfortable revealing names, are there any interesting interactions you've had with celebrities or well-known people that you want to talk about? Yeah, I have a lot of NDAs in the past. I did cook for Toronto Raptor. I'm not cooking for him anymore, and the NDA's over, so I can say his name. He's still on the team. Um, Pascal Siakam, right? Spicy P. Spicy P. Yeah, so I cooked for him right before the pandemic hit. It was a, a decent stint, but the contract was for the year and unfortunately because of uh, covid that got cut off and if you do remember uh the raptors played utah and you rudy gobert had got covid and i was at pascal's house that night and so i get a phone call like you know as as i was leaving the house um man i think you know we got we nba shutting down so like I get a phone call from an NBA player that the NBA is shutting down. So I didn't get I saw I heard it for him before I seen it on the news, which is pretty which is pretty like um, you know, breaking news. <laughs> um, I would say that's breaking news. And yeah. if you remember, Joe, I'm sure you do, Rudy Gobert, poor guy, he's now famous, it'll forever be shown. He made a joke about being the COVID guy, yep. rubbing himself on all the microphones at the press conference. Yep. And as you say, everything changed that night. So you were certainly on the inside in terms of getting that information. Yeah, 100%. It was actually pretty cool, too. I mean, it wasn't cool. Honestly, I got home. I'm not going to lie because of the, the the lack of knowledge that we had of COVID. You know, I tried to stay a little bit on, on track with that, but I was a bit nervous because I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to, to expect, right? So lo and behold, nothing happened, and, and it was that was great. And when you're cooking for an athlete, I'm thinking in this case, they're half their time is at home, and you can control what they're eating. But half the time they're on the road. How do they adhere to kind of a certain diet and get the same quality food away that they would with you at home? Each team has a nutritionist and some teams have two. They give a plan to the athletes on what they should be eating. All athletes don't follow these guidelines. Some of them take more, um, I guess, they're more adhere to, to what certain diets are. And these guys are high level athletes, some of the best athletes in the world. And just imagine, like, if they get an injury, diet is extremely important. So these guys have to pay attention to that. But you if you got a lot of these young guys that are 20 years old in the NBA or NFL, and they still got that young guy, um, that young guy appetite, and they can burn all that fat off, like, instantly. So they'll, they'll eat what they want to eat, right? I think some of the older guys, I think Kobe's one of the guys who really changed the way some of these guys eat. Because he, he has a very, like, well-known diet. Salmon, uh, chicken, lot, little little red meat, fish, um, fish and chicken, a lot of fish and chicken, and rice and broccoli. I mean, he ate basically that all season. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, meet Kobe one time um, when they were here in Toronto um, for the All-Star game. And <clears throat> I was in the kitchen. He came in the kitchen. It was D-Wade. D- it was like, it was everybody because it was Kobe's last hurrah. And um it was pretty cool, but those guys didn't really eat the food because it was like those are the older NBA players that were there, Chris Bosh. And it was the food was I noticed the food was being for the guests. 
um, because those guys were just strict diets. They were playing, and Kobe was still competitive then. So, something else that caught my eye, Joe, was that you would work with uh, Chef Martin Yan from Yan Can Cook. Yeah. <laughs> when was that, and what was that experience like? So that experience was amazing because that's literally one of my favorite favorite chefs of all time. So him, Julia Child, um, uh, Wolfgang Puck, some of the guys I grew up um, uh, watching. And Martin Yan was like, I got, I got to freaking hang out with this guy. So I had an opportunity to work with him just on like a as a ten day basis at Walt Disney World. So they have the Taste of the World at Walt Disney World. It's a big celebration they have every year. And, you know, they there's chefs like Bobby Flake. He was there. Certain chefs that come in and you're, you get assigned, assigned to one, one or two. And so you help do all their meats. Um, they're prepping everything. You help do everything that they need. Help them get familiar with the um, the park, ordering, all that stuff. So I got to work with Marianne for 10 days. And that was really cool to cook food with him and just meet him. He's he's just as amazing as he was on TV as in person. So it's pretty cool. You know, some well, people, that's always some people I've met in the past, TV personalities. You can tell that when the t- and the cameras on, they're different people. I hear you. It's so great. Sometimes you don't want to meet who you look up to because it can be disappointing. But it's so great when you meet someone you look up to and they turn out to be even better than you thought. Yeah, hundred percent. Joe, you are now in a subsection of Toronto Legends. I'm proud to tell you you are in the Toronto Chef Legends on this podcast. We've been fortunate to speak with. Ted Reeder, Matt Basili, Susur Lee, Ivy Knight, Rob Rainford. Have you worked with any of these people? And what do you think of the, uh, I guess, celebrity chef culture? All of those people besides Ivy and um, Susur. Ted's one of my buddies, man. He's been, he's hosted Chef Battle. Matt Basil, I've interviewed him a couple of times for some little small projects. And he's hosted one of my chef battles. Rob Rainford's been a judge in one of my chef battles or a couple of them. And they're all, I can call them all like legit friends in, in the industry. Um, we don't hang out all the time, but we know each other well. And we got, I think, I think there's mutual respect. So, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. What was the second part of that question? Well, just with celebrity chefs, you know, the, the whole culture of it. What, do you have any thoughts on it? And is it good or bad? I, I you know, I think, the, I think the word celebrity chef is used for the public. I don't think a lot of celebrity chefs see them as celebrity chefs. One thing I would like to kind of get across is like the the chef world. People enjoy what we do, but people don't understand the hard work that we have to go through and the pressure that we go through. And, uh, you know, there's so much pressure to make people instantly happy. Like if you sell a car, you don't make the person instantly happy. If you sell a product, you know, but you sell food or scrambled eggs or something, they're going to you're within five minutes. You're going to know if they like it or not. And so the, there's a lot of pressure if you care about your job. And so I think the celebrity aspect of chefs are, is great because it takes a lot of this pressure off for some of these guys that aren't like actively in restaurants. Um, it gives them, it helps them, you know, make a little bit more money. They can spend more time with their families um, and they still get to be a part of great movements. You know, like, you know, you can be a celebrity chef and help um, expose certain parts of the culinary world, like helping homeless people get good meals, like, you know, like helping, um, you can use your celebrity to help people. And, and it's harder to do that when you're, I guess, in a day-to-day kitchen where you just all that pressure, but you got to work those years to kind of get there. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Joe, because of 
all you've seen and you're so involved in the Toronto food scene, I want to ask you as we close up here, what are the trends you see next in Toronto, both in terms of what we eat, but also how we eat? So <laughs> I'm reluctant to say this because I am a chef of beef of statue with burgers. <laughs> but so I think the plant-based movement is going to take a big hit, but I think it's going to be for the better. I think a lot of these plant-based products are slowly the lights coming out that show that, that they're not as healthy, which is going to be a good thing because it's going to make all these people that are in that space to think harder on how they can be- pr- produce a better product. And so I think I don't take that as a negative thing. I think that's going to be good. There's good products out there that I'm is a product right now that I like, and I'm going to drop a plug here. And I don't even know these guys, but I like their product. Um, it's a product called Fable. Um, they do a mushroom-based burger, um, a mushroom-based like it's almost like shredded pork taste, but it's it's, it's various. It's a very solid product. It's very tasty, and it's not like these other things. So I think people like that that are that are looking at some of these um, plant-based products like look soy is not good for the environment as well as co2 emissions right so there's there's a lot of people that a lot of arguments you can have and i'm not i'm not like a specialist in all this but i do know what i know i think the i think that's going to really help the people that are really creative to come up with better products that are going to be equally healthy for the environment as it is for your body so in terms of the what we're going to eat, plant-based movement, that's on the rise. How about how we're going to eat? Because as you know, during COVID, we all started eating at home again and developing our skills. Are we going back out to restaurants? And are the restaurants going to be the type of restaurants we've seen in the past? Or is this a hybrid between eating at home, eating out? It's a very good question. I think the restaurant experience is definitely still wanted by a lot of the customers out there. I do think people who couldn't cook five years ago or three years ago, got a better grasp on what how to cook in the kitchen now. And some of them have better Uber Eats fingers. <laughs> so I think I think I think it's gonna be a well balanced um situation. But I do think a little bit deeper into the future it's gonna be a big separation. It's gonna be your high end sit down restaurants or your Earls um type style restaurants. And then it's gonna be fast casual. And I think the middle restaurants are gonna be harder to sustain financially. Um because mm. of those restaurants are if you notice some of these restaurants are going more into like what uh, what trends are in, in the city. Like you you want a smash burger now, you don't have to go to like Rudy's. You can go to uh, one of these big box restaurants and get a smash burger, right? So they're looking into the, some of these things that have been, you know, uh, recession proof or uh, financially fin- a financial situation where you got to eat, you got to get a good meal, but you don't have a lot of money. So they're they're being a little bit smart on that, so I think I think it's either going to be extremely high end, like your your um, your high end Mission Star restaurants of the world, or then you got your Joey's of the world, and then it's going to be fast casual. And I think the fast casual will have an opportunity to create really really home based meals, home based food, um, like what we're going to do at Friday Burgers is fast casual. You can come in and grab a burger. We're not buying product and just putting it on the grill. We're making we're buying the raw product and we're making the product and we're serving to our customers. And so I think the the care that we we're gonna put in our product is very important to people for people to know that um you know McDonald's there's a stigma on health there. But they're still busy. Um they closed down some restaurants but there's still stigma on health. But people like burgers. So well you know I guess the story of Friday burgers is like we care about the community, we care about the environment, we care eating local. So we're going to stick to those those guns and, and get 
quality ingredients into your bellies. Fantastic. And on that note, where can we best follow you, Joe, and the opening of the Friday Burger Company? You can follow me on uh, Chef Joe Friday, my Instagram. I do have Joe Friday on my YouTube, which I'm going to start putting more content out really soon. I do have some content. And then the Friday Burger Review on TikTok. Um, you can watch that journey. I took a pause for the last two and a half, three months on it. I'm going to pick it up here pretty soon. Um, you can watch that journey as I taste all the burgers I possibly can before we open. Um, like I said, I wanted that number to be 100. So, um, yeah, I want to taste all the burgers. Watch my journey. Let me know what you think. I think I think the really cool thing is I've noticed people have gone to restaurants that I reviewed and and told me or DM me and like, man, that's your review is solid. So that's really good. It's coming from a chef, right? Like I'm not I don't have like a, I don't just get the burger review because it's a good burger. Like, was the customer service great? What's all these other things um, that add on to the burger? And the Friday Burger Company, we are opening this year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> having the date right now is just like, uh, if I can explain to you how this uh, process has been, it hasn't been the easiest opening. And I've opened probably six restaurants in my career. And this has not been, this has probably been like the most challenging. And, and you know, I think everyone involved is doing a great job. I think COVID put a lot of deadlines, moved a lot of deadlines and a lot of restrictions on when you can and can't do things. So there's no one to blame, but, you know, it's just one of those things where, man, I guess you got the good things you wait for, you know? It is what it is. I think you're very smart to not reveal a date. You're much better to under-promise, over-deliver, and I know you will. Joe, it's been great getting to know you today, hear all your stories, and I wish you nothing but the best. We look forward to the opening of the restaurant soon. Thanks for having me. I really, this is fun. It's my pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Chef Joe Friday, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.